Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word, and all the church says, let us pray. O God, you have taught us to keep all your commandments by your by loving you and loving our neighbor. Grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may be devoted to you with our whole heart and united to one another with pure affection through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. We continue with our series in the book of Acts this evening. I want to mention a couple of things just by way of introducing the story. We'll be talking about cross-cultural connections. Several years ago, I read a book, in fact, with that title, Cross-Cultural Connections. And it was a book that helped me understand that there is more to dealing with a different culture than just simply learning the language or learning to love the food of that culture. And I'll give you an example of some things that I mean. Several years ago, when I lived in Colorado, and God showed his favor on me in those days, I enjoyed preaching and teaching in Spanish and also doing some youth ministry. But it was in teaching and preaching in Spanish that I learned about this cross-cultural communication and connections and the difficulties that come along with that. I once preached an entire sermon where I warned those who were listening to me about El mundo pecoso. And I was saying this with conviction. El mundo pecoso. Beware of el mundo pecoso. And everyone was looking at me with big eyes and looking around at this one woman in the congregation. They kept staring at her, wondering what her reaction would be. And at the end of the service, she came up to me and said, Brother, what do you have against me? And I said, I don't have anything against you. And she said, you were preaching against me the whole time, warning everyone about the freckled world. And I'm the only woman in here with freckles. Well, I was trying to say el mundo pecaminoso, the sinful world. And yet I kept saying el mundo pecoso, the freckled world. And so you have language barriers when you're dealing with cross-cultural issues. But it's not just language. It's possible that you could speak the language and still not communicate with someone. 
And so here's a little exercise for you. Let's say that you're at home and you hear a glass break in the kitchen and you run to the kitchen. What do you say when you arrive? When you get to the kitchen, do you say, what happened? Or do you say, who did this? Or do you say, are you okay? Depending on your cultural background, you're going to say one of those three things, perhaps something else. Or let's say that you're taking a walk and suddenly you realize that you don't have your keys on you. What do you say? Do you say, I forgot my keys or I lost my keys? Or do you say, my keys forgot me or my keys went away? It depends very much which culture you come from. In English, you say, I forgot my keys. I lost my keys. But in Spanish, you would say, my keys forgot me. My keys left me behind. Cross-cultural communication is difficult, more difficult than we imagine. And that's what you find in this story in Acts 6. You've got two different kinds of people. Now note, they are Jewish people, but you've got some who speak Greek and some who speak Aramaic. And there's a disconnect, and that has generated some conflict in the church. As we get into this, I want to I want to let you know that we're going to be talking a little bit about partiality and favoritism today, not in favor of it, but against it. You know what that is, right? Partiality and favoritism. You know what that is. It's when someone gives preference to someone else for superficial reasons, Reasons like the color of their skin or their gender, their ethnicity, their looks, their education, their class. And they treat them differently based on those superficial reasons. And not just differently, but often treat them better than they would treat others for those reasons. As we're going to see in just a moment, this is not just a problem that's out there in the world. It is also a problem inside the church of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, a friend of mine invited me to play Sandlot football with some of his friends. And it was a cold winter day. It was muddy and we had a blast. We, we looked terrible at the end of the game. No injuries were sustained at that time, which was a plus. But after the game, a bunch of guys were standing around my van uh, because the van blocked the wind. And we were horsing around and one guy wanted to tell a joke to us. And he said, hey, guys, I've got a joke that you're all going to think is hilarious. And before he started the joke, he looked at me and he said, "Um, if you don't mind, what's your ethnic background? It wasn't the first time that I'd been put in a situation like that. I am brown and people want to know what my background is all the time, especially when it comes time to tell jokes. So there are a few nervous chuckles in this moment, followed by an awkward silence because I thought, what a jerk, first of all, but then I didn't say that out loud. I wanted to know, why does it matter? Go on, tell your joke. And then this guy blushed and stammered and said, never mind, I don't think it's that funny. Have any of you ever been the victim of someone else's bias or prejudice just because you're a woman or brown skin or a blue collar worker or divorced or a Republican or an old white man or a Catholic 
or you fill in the blank. Have any of you ever been the victim of someone else's bias and prejudice? And you know what a terrible, horrible feeling that is. Flip the script. Have any of you ever made someone else the victim of your bias or prejudice? Just because they were gay or a redneck or well-to-do or undocumented or a Democrat or black or a young person or someone with a lot of tattoos or you fill in the blank. I can assure you that it was a terrible, horrible experience for the other person. These are things of which we need to repent. In the story before us today, we learn that the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ prevents us, or at least prohibits us, from showing partiality and favoritism, from showing bias or contempt towards each other or towards other people. Now, in context, what we see in Acts is that up to this point in the book of Acts, Most of the problems have been arising from outside the church. And last week we saw that there was a turn when we see the tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira that marked a turning point. And then we started to see problems arising from within the church. And here in Acts 6, we see another problem arising from within the church. And what's happening here is that in the midst of all of the growth and all of the expansion of the church, there are people who are actually getting lost in the shuffle of ministry. It can happen. It can happen whether the church is large or small. People often get overlooked for one reason or another. And so what happens is one group finally began to murmur and complain. And the word that's used here for complain doesn't mean that they were making a lot of noise and, and causing a big scene. It just meant that among themselves, they were murmuring and grumbling and complaining because they realized something wasn't right. There was an injustice happening within the church against them. And the leaders of the church caught wind of it. And decided they needed to work it out. And as I mentioned, here's what the issue was. You had some Jewish Christians who only spoke Greek. And then you had Jewish Christians who spoke Aramaic. And since there were so many people who had come to Jerusalem, so many people who had come to Jerusalem for Passover and for Pentecost and and stayed around because the spirit had been poured out and the church had been formed, you have a lot of needs arising. People were overstaying uh, their visas, so to speak, in Jerusalem. They're running out of money. They don't have the resources. And so the church is taking care of those people among them who have needs. Specifically, the widows. The widows are the ones who are suffering here. Now, on the surface, this might not seem like such a big deal to to us, but I want you to think about the, the nature of problems. It usually depends which side of the problem you're on before you decide whether it's a problem or not. If you're on the side of the widows who are receiving the daily distribution of food through the mercy ministry, you don't see a problem because you are receiving what you need. But if you're in that other tribe where people are not receiving what is needed, then there is a problem and you might feel that. But what's happening here is there's a lack of communication. 
So all the people are Jewish, they're baptized Christians, but they don't all speak the same language. You have Aramaic speaking Jews who were probably residents of Jerusalem, residents of Judea, the surrounding villages and cities. They are the insiders of the church. And then you've got these other Greek-speaking Jews who had come from other places, either for the festivals or for personal reasons. Maybe they relocated to be near family. Jobs brought them there. Maybe fear of outsiders brought them there. But whatever the case is, relative to the Aramaic-speaking Jews, they are the outsiders. This is not unlike the situation we see among Hispanics today. I want to give you a little insight. You might not know this. If you do, just indulge me. But you might not know that not all Hispanics are the same. There are many differences. A pastor friend of mine who is at Redeemer Presbyterian in San Antonio recently told me that there is no one size fits all in Hispanic ministry. There's a lot of prejudice between Texan Hispanics and Mexican Hispanics in San Antonio. And he says, although they have many similarities culturally, they have many differences as well. For example, not all Hispanics speak Spanish. And not even all Hispanics who speak Spanish speak it very well. Some only speak English. Others only speak Spanish. Others speak Espanglish. So it makes doing ministry among Hispanics far more challenging than most people realize. The same was true of the church at Jerusalem and their ministry to the Jews. It's remarkable, isn't it? If you could speak Aramaic, then you could target those people. If you could speak Greek, you could target another subset of people. But it took someone who was bilingual to do both of these to do ministry in both camps, in both tribes. In Acts 6, what do we see? We see what is perhaps the first ever form of cross-cultural and bilingual ministry in the church of Jesus. Ministry to those who spoke Greek, ministry to those who spoke Aramaic, with a little bit of mixture in between. I remember way back, I believe it was in the late 1990s, there was an old AT&T ad that said, when people communicate anything is possible. I actually wrote a note of that in one of my old Bibles next to the story of Babel, because I thought this is what they were saying at the Tower of Babel. When people communicate, anything is possible. And that's more or less true. And even God recognized that, which is why he confused the languages of the human race. And ever since Babel, people have been divided and communities have been formed along the lines of who can I communicate with? Who understands me? Who can I understand? Well, a few weeks ago, you remember that we saw in the story of Pentecost that at least on a small scale, the curse of Babel was reversed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was in that time that Jewish people from all over the place came together and they heard the apostles preaching the good news of Jesus Christ each one in his or her own language. And this was possible, made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you fast forward a little bit to Acts 6, and you've got this 
communication breakdown in the church. What's going on here? Why didn't someone in the church just start speaking in tongues? Why didn't someone in the church just start speaking so that people who understood Greek understood the message in Greek and those who spoke Aramaic understood the message in Aramaic? Why didn't they do that, especially at the moment of the daily distribution of food to the widows? Seems kind of important, right? This might be one of those side notes. We won't go very far on it or chase this rabbit, but um, I don't think speaking in tongues works the way some people think speaking in tongues works. It's not a, fl- a switch that you flip on and say, now we're going to speak in tongues. Now we're not going to speak in tongues. Obviously, there was a moment here in the church when people were like, we don't know what this group needs. We don't know how to talk to them. We don't know what they're saying to us. So it might have been just a breakdown in communication. Here's your bread. What? What are you saying to me? I don't understand what that is. Come get your stew. We have stew for you. I don't know what you're saying to me. Or it could have been that there was something deeper and more sinister going on. We don't really know. All we know is that the breakdown of communication led to a situation in which some widows were being well taken care of and other widows were not being taken care of at all. But what I want you to see is that the problem here is much deeper than just language. It's much deeper than just language. The story itself gives us the hint. It hints at the fact that these widows were being neglected. Look at that word in your, in your Bible. The widows were being neglected. That's verse 1. They were being looked over, passed over. The Greek word conveys the idea of looking at two things side by side, comparing and contrasting them, and then opting for one over the other. That's what the neglect was. This lets us see that it was the Hebrew Christians, the Aramaic-speaking Christians, who were in charge of distributing food to all the widows. They were likely the dominant culture in this church. It also helps us see why the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Apparently, the insiders were biased in some way against the outsiders. They showed partiality and favoritism to other insiders, even if they only did it Subtly or subconsciously. In other words, even if they didn't do it deliberately and intentionally, it was happening. Several years ago, I was in, living in South Mexico and I was in charge of a scholarship program. A church had entrusted me with several thousand dollars and my responsibility was to make sure that the scholarships promised to certain families were put into the hands of those families so that their children could continue studying and they would have food and, and supplies for school. It was, a, it was a neat program and I appreciated being entrusted with that and enjoyed being a part of that. Visiting families in their home, delivering the gift that didn't come from me, but from others, but seeing the joy on the faces of these families as they realize that this is going to help them get their kids down the road a little bit more. But soon we discovered that many who had real needs were not having those needs met because there were a few who were taking advantage of the program. 
It's often the case, even among Christians, that there is corruption as people have felt needs and those needs feel so strong and pressing that they'll do anything to to help themselves. And so there were families who didn't have the same kind of need as some of the poorer families who were receiving scholarships and others who were very poor were not receiving because funds were running out before they were able to get their paperwork in. Basically a little note saying, please help my child, right? There's nothing fancy. And so those who were taking advantage of the program ended up hurting those who truly needed help. And as a result, those who truly needed help were being overlooked. And we had to have a very difficult come to Jesus meeting, an open meeting to say to those families who were taking advantage, you know who you are. Stop petitioning. Stop asking because other brothers and sisters have real need. All I'm trying to say with that is that sometimes in ministry of mercy, as you're trying to help people, you find how difficult it is to help because those who really need help often don't have a voice for themselves. They don't know how to cry out for help. And others who know how to work the system will take advantage. This is the kind of thing we see happening in Acts 6. When the complaint was brought to the twelve apostles, they gathered the church and they said to the church, we need your help in solving this problem. And so I love this about the apostles here. They gather the church and they say to the church, you look out among yourselves, you find seven men who are men of this kind of spiritual caliber and character and bring them to us. Make sure they're skilled for this work and we'll examine them and ordain them for this ministry. And that's what the church did. This is very similar to what we heard from the reading in Deuteronomy 16, where God told Moses to appoint, ordain judges and officers over the people. These men were nominated by the church and ordained by the apostles, but they weren't only spiritually qualified for the ministry, they were in fact practically qualified for the ministry. And I don't want you to overlook that. That's a very important point of this story. And here's why. Some of you have been to seminary or know people who have been to seminary, and you might be aware that there are world-class professors of theology who are definitely skilled at teaching in the halls of academia. But if you took those same professors of theology and put them on the streets of America, they would flounder. They don't have what it takes to talk to a guy on the street about those kinds of things. They can't bring it down a few notches and put the cookies on the bottom shelf. It's also possible that you would have a pastor who spends his life ministering among the poor. That same pastor might not be able to do so well, serve so well among the rich. His skill set is different. The seven men who were ordained by the apostles were uniquely qualified spiritually and practically for this particular ministry. How do we know that? Because Luke goes out of his way to tell us a little bit about these men. And while some of this is lost on us because we're limited by English, I'm going to highlight for you here. I want you to know that Luke mentions these men by name because he wants us to see that these men were Jewish Christians 
who spoke Greek. These men are cross-cultural. These men are bilingual. And we know that because Luke gives us their names and they are all Greek names. They're all Greek names. So when the apostles said to the church, find the men who can serve in this capacity and help us out with this, what did the church do? The church put forward men who were cross-cultural and bilingual and said, we want these guys to be the judges and the officers and the deacons over this ministry. The apostles thought it was wise and they laid hands on them. And so these men were able to serve and take care of widows in both tribes. Isn't that beautiful? They're willing and able to take care of the widows who were in both tribes. And so the Greek-speaking widows and the Aramaic-speaking widows were receiving their daily portion of food as it came out to them. This is an incredible story, very helpful for us in our congregation as we think about Uh, what we've been trying to do, whether you consider our efforts to be feeble or fantastic, you see that we are trying to do this very kind of thing, this cross-cultural, bilingual kind of ministry. And I got to tell you, it ain't been easy, has it? It hasn't been easy for us. It hasn't been easy for our Hispanic brothers either. It's challenging, not impossible, but challenging. What I want you to see in this story is that it doesn't take you know, much imagination to see that this is the kind of controversy or complaint that could wreak havoc on a congregation. It could just bring the house down. Where you've got insiders biased against outsiders. You've got one group showing partiality or favoritism to another. You've got all of these things going on. And what I want to say to you is that, first of all, I want to commend you. And I mean that sincerely. I want to commend you for all the years that you have labored at this and made effort to, uh, to do the thing that God has called you to do in getting outside of yourselves and loving others who are different than you, who are willing to, for those of you who are willing to uh, endure a little bit of Spanish here and there and then cross over and get out of pizza and hamburger land into tacos and tamales and such. I know for some that was not a a sacrificial move at all, but we're happy you did it, okay? But what I'm trying to get you to see is that this is a, a, a difficult task to do, and we can't do it without the Holy Spirit and the gospel of grace. But if we're not careful, we could slip into the same kinds of things that we see happening in Acts 6. So we want to do, and we've been trying to do this, make every effort to identify, equip, and ordain qualified men to serve on our session and on our diaconate. And when I say that, I mean men who are cross-cultural and bilingual, men who understand both worlds a little bit better, who can help bridge the gap and and narrow the, the empty space and bring our two communities, our two tribes closer together. There are some practical things that we can do, simple things that that you all can do uh, on the Lord's Day. Things like greet each other. Go out of your way to greet each other in English and Spanish. Go out of your way. Smile, hug, stick out your hand, shake hands. Go out of your way to sit in different places. We're all creatures of habit. We like our spot, but go out of your way. Mix things up a little bit and make sure that you're showing at least some effort to merge these two communities, these two cultures. 
really more than two cultures. Try to recite the prayers and sing songs in Spanish. It's going to feel weird if you haven't already tried. I know some of you are trying, but do it. The Lord can hear you and he understands what you're trying to say. When you come to the Lord's table and you're in line, you're, you're coming up to the table. Look at each other. Greet each other. Smile. Put your arm around someone. Pass the peace was the old tradition. So say to someone, La Paz de Cristo. And they'll respond, La Paz de Cristo. Or maybe they'll say, The peace of Christ. You're passing the peace to each other in line. If you understand or speak Spanish, feel free to go and sit in on a sermon or a message by our brother Clemente. You will be encouraged as he is wise and capable in his handling of Scripture. If you've got time, visit Mesquite, MC Mesquite from time to time. Now, you've got to have time to do that because they take more time than any of our MCs do. But go there. They'll love to have you. You'll have a good, a good time uh, hearing the Word of God, reciting the Word of God together, sitting around a table, eating delicious food. Again, make sure you have time because you might not get out of there until nine or beyond. And ladies, I want to encourage you, as odd as this is going to sound, I want to encourage you to play bunco. I didn't think I would ever say that publicly, much less in a sermon, but make effort to do that. And here's why. You'd be amazed at how that simple little game has worked to narrow the cultural gap in our congregation. And it's done that in better ways than just about anything else we have done. I don't know how it works. I played a couple times. Didn't know what I was doing. But I loved what I saw. And so if we're serious about breaking out of our tendencies to show partiality and favoritism, to get caught up in the traps of our culture, then these are small things that we can do. Be aware, be conscious of the fact that uh, a smile goes a long way, a handshake, a hug goes a long way, sitting with someone at a table goes a long way to breaking down these barriers. Let us pray together.